Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, animales, animales Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal activism to the airwaves. And today, uh, your host, myself, Roy Taylor, will be interviewing Lauren Ornelius of the Food Empowerment Project. Now, Freedom of Species is a a program dedicated to bringing animal advocacy to the airwaves. And that involves conservation, protection, rewilding, animal rights and animal welfare. We're broadcast from the 3CR studios, uh, Smith Street, Collingwood, Melbourne, Australia. And previous shows are available via podcast on the 3CR website. Also on iTunes, you can search for Freedom of Species on iTunes and see our old, hear our old shows. And we've got our own website, freedomofspecies.org, which has all our shows uh, divided into categories. Great resource. So before we go to the interview, and it's actually a special May Day themed interview uh, with the Food Empowerment Project, we'll just go to a community announcement. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others were... The recognition of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. So you're listening to 855 AM 3CR and this is Freedom of Species, Animal Activism on the Airwaves. And today we are hosting a special show for May Day. Uh, we are interviewing Lauren Ornelius, who is the director of the Food Empowerment Project. And the Food Empowerment Project is an organization set up to campaign for workers' rights in the food industry. Um, and the food, um, 
So Food Empowerment Project, it's a vegan food justice non-profit and it seeks to create a more just world uh, by helping consumers recognise uh, the power of food choices. Food Empowerment Project works in solidarity with farm workers, advocates for child la- for advocates for chocolate not sourced from the worst forms of child labour, and it focuses on access to healthy foods in communities of colour and low-income communities. Uh, Lauren was previously the director of Viva USA, and she investigated factory farms and ran consumer campaigns. In cooperation with activists across the country, she persuaded Trader Joe's to so- stop selling all duck meat, and was the spark that got the founder of Whole Foods Market to go vegan. She also helped the helped to halt the construction of an industrial dairy operation in California. She serves as the campaign director with uh, Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition for six years. And she's got a TEDx talk on the power of our food choices. So we're going to go to that interview now. What is your role with the Food Empowerment Project? I'm the founder and executive director of Food Empowerment Project. Okay, and please tell listeners about the Food Empowerment Project. Sure, we are a all-vegan food justice organization, meaning that we are a vegan organization for ethical reasons. We don't believe any non-human animals should be die at the hands of humans or exploited or, you know, so that includes obviously animals um, who people consume as well as those that are experimented on and used in entertainment that we're an ethically based vegan organization. But we also work on other social justice issues and human rights issues. So we also work on doing advocacy on the, um, sorry. We also do advocacy to speak out against the injustices taking place against farm workers. So we work on, you know, supporting corporate campaigns, legislative efforts and regulatory changes to, you know, again, farm workers pick the food that we all eat. Um, So by encouraging people to go vegan, which we do for those who have access to healthy food, we want to be um, aware and be a part of a positive change for farm workers who are basically feeding all of us. So we actually organize a school supply drive for the children of farm workers every year to help with their education. And we see this not as an act of charity, but instead a way to help right an injustice that's taking place against these families who do so much for their children. We also work to encourage people not to buy chocolate that is sourced from the worst forms of child labor, including slavery. So we have a list of chocolates we do and don't recommend based on where they source their chocolate from. And we also work on access to healthy foods in communities of color and low-income communities, recognizing that access to healthy food should be a right and not a privilege. But in this country and in many around the world, accessing healthy foods um, is not that. And many people do not have Many communities of color, indigenous people, and low-income communities don't have access to healthy foods. And you are based in the United States of America, yes? Yes. Whereabouts are you based? We're actually in Northern California, so we're north of San Francisco and Sonoma County. What was your journey to be involved in both animal advocacy and fighting for social justice of people involved in the food industry? I, yeah, I think that a lot of the work that I do when I looked back on it was like had to be, you know, really associated with, you know, who I am and, and how I was raised. But my parents got divorced when I was four years old and I grew up in Texas and, um, you know, I was would see a lot of cows in the fields 
And I think that during this time, the reality of having families separated really hit me deeply. And so I would imagine what it would be like for a cow to not have his mom come home or the mom to not have her babies come home. And it just broke my heart. And so when I was in elementary school, I actually went vegetarian because I just, I, did, I loved animals and I didn't want to be responsible for hurting them or separating their families at all. But over time, um, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money. My mom raised my sisters and I by herself. And so even though I wanted to be vegetarian, we didn't really have the ability to always choose our food. You know, a lot of times people were bringing us food. So I wasn't able to stick with it until I was in high school. And during this time, my mom also, I'm, I'm a Chicana, which means that I'm, I was born in the United States, but my family is of Mexican descent. So I'm first generation Mexican on my dad's side, living in the United States, and 11th generation on my mom's side, though my mom's family was in um, Texas before it was even Texas, when it was still part of Mexico. So my mom raised me with an understanding about um, farm worker rights, and we were involved in the great boycott that the United Farm Workers had started in the 80s. So I already was aware of some of the farm worker issues that were going on. So in high school, I decided that I was going to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day. I didn't care, but I didn't want to be responsible for eating animals anymore. So from the time I was 16 in the 80s, until now, I've pretty much dedicated my life to advocating um, and working for the rights of non-human animals. But during this time, um, and I've, I um, ran a chapter of Viva based in England. I was in charge of Viva USA. Um, and during this time, you know, doing a lot of animal rights work, I was receiving a lot of pushback um, regarding my wanting to inform other people about other abuses in the food industry, including those against human animals. And I realized that I needed to start my own organization where I could combine my passions for human and non-human animals. And hoping I wasn't the only one who felt this way, um, I started Food Empowerment Project. I'm curious, could you describe what you meant by the pushback that you were getting around that time? Yeah, I would be asked, I would do radio interviews about the work that I was doing, um, focusing on, you know, animals used for food and corporate campaigns that I was running. And, you know, eventually, if you do this a lot, you have a lot of people who at the time would ask, well, do you care about human rights issues or why aren't you working on those issues? And so I would talk about it. I would say, you know what, I actually don't eat chocolate right now because of how, you know, what's happening in Western Africa. I would talk about the farm workers and the campaigns that they had going on. And animal rights activists would contact me afterwards and contact other activists, and they would talk about how it was hurting the animals, that I was talking about these other human rights issues. Um, and I would be mocked for caring, you know, kind of like the same way when you encounter people who consume animals and they'll, you know, eat meat in front of you and be like, oh, this tastes so good. You know, I kind of experienced that a lot when I would tell people I wouldn't eat chocolate and the reasons why. They would kind of engage around me in that same behavior, even though they were vegans and they understood um, how similar this was. So it just kind of, you know, I realized that I had to create a mission and an organization that it wasn't violating any mission statement of any organization that I was running, that it was part of the mission. Was there a particular instance that brought you to a realization that you wanted to do more 
than just vegan advocacy? Was it something one person particularly said or? wasn't exactly something that somebody said, but I spoke at the World Social Forum in Caracas, Venezuela, and I went specifically to speak about industrial animal factories and the impact that they have on the animals, the environment, and workers. And when I was there, I was exposed to so many amazing activists around the globe who were working on issues that I cared very much about, such as immigration, water privatization, the environment. And so I realized that there were people who cared about these other different things that I did. And I just, when I came back from there, I just realized there was no way I could just simply work on um, advocating for non-human animals. I wanted to lend my voice to um, those other organizations who were working for human rights. Many animal advocates would argue that there's already many other people working on those issues and, and the few vegans that there are need to concentrate on the animal issues because there are few vegans. How would you respond to that kind of claim? Well, a few different ways. (laughs) One would be that there's nothing to say that people can't fight two injustices at the same time. Our history in the United States, where we have someone like Frederick Douglass, who was an abolitionist, who was a former slave, who also spoke in favor of the women's right to vote. You have Martin Luther King Jr., who advocated for civil rights, but also spoke out against the war in Vietnam and advocated for the plight of the janitors. I don't think that there's an either or when it comes to these issues. Um, These injustices are are at the hands of the same um, who seek to exploit all of us, whether it be people of color or women or the LGBTQ community. Um, It's all the same. So the roots of these oppression are the same. When we fight against one, we can fight against all of it. Having said that, though, I never expect an animal organization to give up their mission and to cease doing what it is for non-human animals, because absolutely, we need to be advocating for them. But what I encourage um, those working for and involved in only um, advocacy towards um, non-human animals is to be consistent in what it is that they say and be consistent what it is with what they do. So if they're at if they're selling chocolate or talking about vegan chocolate that if they want to say it's cruelty-free, that they make sure that it's not being sourced in the worst areas where child child slavery and downright um, horrific abuses are taking place, to not act as if our diet is the most compassionate diet when recognizing it comes at the hands of women and men and children who suffer in the fields to pick our produce. So I think that there are things that they can do to be do that they're good work for non-human animals, but be consistent about what it is that they say and what it is that they do. And that leads me to uh, my next question. You say that the um, the roots of the oppression of animals and the roots of the oppression of uh, farm workers are essentially the same causes behind them. Could you elaborate on that, please? Sure. I mean, with both of them, a very easy thing is to say, is to remind us that, you know, we, at least in the United States, we live in a capitalistic society that, you know, human and non-human animals are both seen as commodities. And it's at the expense to their health, their welfare, their family's welfare to make the mighty dollar. And so that's part of it. I would also say that, you know, racism um, is, is inherent in our society. And that also is why many of the people most exploited in the food industry, whether it be factory farm workers, slaughterhouse workers, um, and produce workers, are people of color who are seen um, to some as um, not being human 
that, you know, somehow they're different. So I think you have capitalism, you know, again, being behind a lot of it and um, how, you know, again, profit overrides everything. And I presume that you feel um, traditional animal rights movement maybe isn't as politically aware of other issues as it could be. Absolutely. And I think that that's why many, a lot of times many people in the animal movement have a lot of missteps in how they speak about these issues and how they do their own advocacy, which can be pretty offensive to many people of color. Um, because they are so singularly focused on non-human animals, they don't think twice to use analogies or similarities um, to make a point that they want to make for non-human animals. And I, I would say women in that regard as well. You're listening to 3CR. This is Freedom of Species, Animal Activism on the Airwaves. And that's the first part of an interview I conducted a couple of days ago with Lauren Ornelius, director of the Food Empowerment Project, an organisation, a vegan organisation, which campaigns for the rights of workers in the food production industry. We'll go back to that interview after some music. Hey, join us for the launch of 3CR's 40th anniversary book, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. The book tells the story of 3CR's contribution to Australian cultural and political life and will be launched at Bella Union Bar at Trades Hall on Friday the 6th of May at 6pm. The evening includes speakers, revolutionary drinks, nibbles and the opportunity to get your copy of Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR. RSVP at 3crbooklaunch.eventbrite.com.au You're listening to Freedom of Species, Animal Activists on the Airwaves on 855 AM 3CR Radical Radio. And in celebration of May Day, we are having a Freedom of Species broadcast that combines both animal advocacy and workers' rights, because this is an interview with Lauren Ornelius, who is the director of Food Empowerment Project, a vegan organisation that campaigns for the rights of workers in the food industry. Let's go back to that interview now. So when did you start setting up the Food Empowerment Project and uh, and take us through the achievements that you've had? Sure. Um, we were got started in 2007 and we were all volunteer and I actually had a full-time job at another nonprofit up until 2013. So our Growth was pretty slow because I didn't have um, all my time to dedicate to it as I would have liked to. Um, and then in 2013, I quit my full-time job and I've been able to dedicate with the help of my partner, um, able to um, continue to do this work. Um, we're still primarily all volunteer. And so we're still pretty small. Some of the, you know, some of that goes for the fact that we do combine human and non-human rights issues. Um, but some of our accomplishments, which I'm really proud of, is we did a, an assessment of access to healthy foods in Santa Clara County, which is known as the Silicon Valley. It's a very wealthy area, and we made an assessment on um, the access to healthy foods between high- and low-income communities, and there being a big um, discrepancy and an injustice taking place for, towards communities of color who don't have the same access to healthy foods. We then did a focus group in San Jose, one of those communities, 
to hear the voices of what the community members wanted and what the barriers were. With these reports, we provide them to policymakers, but more importantly, to the community organizations so they can use this, these studies to help fundraise and continue their work. We also, um, from 2011 until 2014, I think, we pressured a company called Cliff Bar. Um, they would not be transparent about where their chocolate was sourced from. So we campaigned against them for about three years, and they finally disclosed country of origin for their chocolate. Um, I think that our biggest accomplishments um, are, you know, different than other organizations. Uh, we know, you know, to look at where we are now from where we began, you have more and more organizations um, talking about what's happening um, with chocolate in Western Africa. In fact, I spoke at a conference a couple weeks ago where the conference organizers, it was an all-vegan event, and the conference organizers made sure that all the chocolate at their event was recommended by us. Um, and so we are pleased to see that some in the vegan community embracing what it is what we're trying to do and recognizing the connections of this oppression that we can't, you know, how can you turn a blind eye to one and not the other? So we were pleased that they made sure that their event um, only used chocolate that we recommended. We've also noticed there seems to be more awareness about what's happening in farm worker issues. So we know that our work seems to be seeping through and people seem to be recognizing more some of the issues that we're talking about. There's a long way to go, but we are pleased that um, there is there's some consciousness being raised. Sounds great. You mentioned earlier the school supply drive that you're involved in. Um, could you tell us some more details about that? Absolutely. We did our first school supply drive for the children of farm workers in 2013, and we only had a few drop-off locations, and we collected about 42 backpacks. This last year, in 2015, we collected over 390 backpacks full of school supplies for the children of farm workers. So basically, we have drop-off locations throughout the Bay Area, and people will go and they'll drop off backpacks and pencils and notebook paper, and then we go out and we deliver them to the children of farm workers. Um, we work with an organization called Center for Farm Worker Families, who's earned the trust of many of these um, farm workers who are actually undocumented. And we're able to go there and give them the school supplies and thank their parents for all the hard work that they do and make sure that their children know that we're rooting for them and that we want them to succeed. That's great. So that's really growing in a couple of years. It is. That's, it's been incredibly exciting to see the outpour of support. And it's just, it's one of those things that like you're like, you feel like your heart's going to burst and people don't understand how amazing it feels, but it does. It feels amazing to be talking about these issues and finally to have people really getting how much um, we appreciate the farm workers and that we want to give back to them. And so it's grown a lot. We'll be doing it again this year and um, we hope to collect even more. How did you come up with that idea? Or where did that idea come from? It came from, I went on a reality tour with this organization, Center for Farm Worker Families, where you go to where the farm workers pick their food, you go to see one of their houses, and you also go to a labor camp where they live, and you're encouraged to bring things if you'd like, either clothes or school supplies. So we brought, um, you know, a couple packs of pencils and pens, and a 13-year-old boy ran up to this pack of pencils and looked at it and said, awesome. 
And I was like, how many 13 year old boys are really excited about pencils? You know, yeah, and I realized, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like a video game or something. So the fact that he was so excited reminded me that this is something, this is something that maybe a lot of people and children take for granted, but not these kids. They recognize how hard it is for them to have something like this. And so when I saw him get so excited, I thought we need to get them more school supplies. And we need to make sure that we're helping as much as we can so that kids like this can succeed. Yeah, it's only a, it, it seems a small thing, but it can make a huge difference to someone's life, yeah? Exactly. And the, the families as well, um, then they have money to put to something else that they might need, like food, like rent. You know, yeah. and they know that their children have what they need to start out the school year. You know, we, we had an email afterwards about a woman who wasn't going to send her daughter to school because she didn't have school supplies. But luckily, this head of this other organization had one more backpack for her. You know, so it's like, again, something that seems so small to many people is a lot. You know, this is a lifetime that it's going to be changing for these kids. Well, that's really great. Yeah, that can have a huge impact. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about chocolate, because everyone likes talking about chocolate, particularly yes. vegans. <laughs> especially vegans. <laughs> yes, especially <laughs> vegans. So vegans eat a lot of chocolate. That's it, Where it comes from is not always thought about. So I'm going to ask you to actually go from the top and, and talk about what are the problems with a lot of chocolate, first of all, and then what can be done and what your organization does. So what's the problem with a lot of chocolate? I, I want to say, too, I think some of us vegans are always so happy about vegan chocolate because, like, back in the 80s, there wasn't a whole lot that we could eat. And so I think we always get so excited. Well, back but, in the, um, I, I remember back in the 1980s being given carob. Yes, carob was like the thing, carob colored, covered raisins and stuff. It was like we had to pretend that was the best thing ever. Uh, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't very impressed actually, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so 70% of the world's cacao, or I'll use chocolate, um, comes from Western Africa. And um, here's where like some of the worst forms of child labor and slavery take place, where children are, you know, used to harvest cacao pods off trees some children as young as seven years old have been seen using machetes and um, that's actually against international law that's considered using hazardous equipment so a lot of these kids have scars on their arms and their legs from injuring themselves cutting these cacao pods out of the trees um, many times the children you know these are very heavy cacao pods if they're not moving fast enough sometimes they'll be beaten a lot of these children come from different places. Um, Mali and Burkina Faso are two countries nearby which are very poor. So sometimes family members might sell them into slavery. Other times, worse, the kids are actually stolen from marketplaces. And other times, families send their kids thinking they're actually going to work and that they're going to actually be able to bring home the money and they're going to see their children again and it doesn't happen. There's been documentaries um, talking about how... Um, you know, these kids don't even speak a native dialect, and the language that they're speaking is actually from countries hundreds of miles away. So, you know, it's a, it's a serious problem. When we talk about slavery, it is slavery in the sense that these children many times are locked in at night, and if they try to escape, they're beaten. And all of this for a luxury item such as chocolate, which is just outrageous, um, that here in this day and age when you have corporations making money, lots of money, off of them that they can't see fit um, to pay these people what they deserve to be paid. 
So what food empowerment price tries to do in general, we try to show people the different ways in which their food choices can make a difference in the world to show them that they, they, they have, a, you know, the opportunity to use informed decisions to help create change. So when it comes to the chocolate issue, we have um, created a list of chocolate that we do and don't recommend based on where their cacao is sourced. So the companies have to at least make one vegan item because we are a vegan organization. And we contact the companies and we give them practically two months um, with three reminders to get back to us to let us know where their chocolate comes from. And we put them on this list, either they're recommended or they're not. And if they're not recommended, we explain why. So maybe they aren't being transparent. They're not going to tell us. Um, some of them don't even respond. So we have the list broken down so that people understand why we're not recommending particular companies. We also have the list in app forms, which can be used for an iPhone or an Android. Um, and we also use do pressure corporations who are not being transparent to tell us where the chocolate's coming from because we don't feel proprietary um, information, you know, that they're claiming that this is proprietary is enough to hide behind when it comes down to child labor and slavery taking place. So we demand that they tell us country of origin or we make sure that their customers know they won't and make sure they hear from their customers that, that they want to know. I'm just looking at the list on your internet site at the moment, and I see that you do have Australian products on there as well. As well as we do. We have a volunteer in Australia who contacts us and gives us a list of vegan companies for us to look into. We've been very lucky to have her help. We also have companies in Germany as well as the general EU and England specific, really just depending on where volunteers um, in different countries send us um, company names. So you do rely on this, certainly on the help of volunteers giving you leads. If someone wanted to volunteer and help you for this, what, how would they get involved and what kind of help are you looking for? Well, for the chocolate issue, we would just love for somebody, you know, if they want to volunteer, they can email us at info at, um, sorry, info at foodispower.org. And um, they can let us know. They can actually just send us a list of chocolate companies. Vegan. They all have to make at least one, something that's vegan and ask us to look into them. And if they want to say, you know, I'd be happy to help look for more. Because, again, we want to make sure the list is as inclusive as possible. But we just don't know what all the vegan products are that are out there. So you're, you're wanting, yes, you're basically wanting leads on vegan chocolates for you then to do the research on. So you guys would do the research, but uh, you need the leads on the actual chocolate themselves. Yeah, we actually, um, you know, if the people wanted to contact the companies, we would just have to train them on how it's done and how we do it. Yeah. And then, yeah, then that's, then they can do it on their own. But they keep us in the loop so we can update our list. That's great, and us uh, and the app is a uh, very clever idea to have an app with the list on. Yeah, that was uh, by consumer demand as well. Actually, I was talking about the chocolate issue for years, and people were like, well, what chocolate can I buy? And that's where the list came from. And then after we had the list, people were like, well, I'd like something that I can use in the store, and that's where the app came from. So we try to listen and do what we can. On your website, you've got a section understanding how list so that people understand your criteria for exactly. what gets on the list and what doesn't. Totally. We want to be just as transparent about why why companies are listed the way that they are. Yes. 
now I'm just looking at your and that's on your resources of your website and you've got lots of other uh, resources there as well. There's Lawrence Pope, Victorian Advocates for Animals. You know, it doesn't matter where I am, around Australia or across the globe, people ask me the same question. Why don't we have programs like 3CR's Freedom of Species? Why don't we have independent radio? Not radio that's a puppet of the millionaires and the billionaires, but radio that reflects the real concerns of people like you, the very salt of this great country, from Warrnambool to Wonthaggy, from Malakuta to Cootamundra, 3CR, they're kind of cats, they're for the bats, that's independent radio, that's freedom of species, not the enslavement of species, I said the freedom of species. You know what to do, donate to independent radio and warm your heart while you're cooling the planet. This is Lawrence Pope of Victorian Advocates for Animals and 3CR, wishing your species all the best. Can you go through some of, the op- uh, some of your resources that uh, are there for people via your website? Sure. Well, our website has a section called Know the Issues, and that is where the bulk of content to our website is. And basically, we have information. We go through animals raised and killed for food. Um, unfortunately, a variety of the animals, um, including rabbits, fish, and other sea creatures, We also go through different worker issues, including um, farm workers, as well as produce, I'm sorry, as well as slaughterhouse workers and factory farm workers. We have environmental issues, so environmental racism. Again, that's where um, communities of color are more impacted by negative pollutants um, than other communities. Um, We have information on water privatization. We have a section called ethical eating, where we specifically talk about companies such as Monsanto and um, Coca-Cola and Nestle and palm oil um, to really get people to understand why we encourage people to boycott those companies and why we encourage people to do the best that they can not to consume palm products. We also have information on coffee and bananas on our website where we do give short lists of um, companies that we feel comfortable to recommend. It's nowhere nearly as extensive as the chocolate list but it gives some people um, avenues to look into. We also have a list of, on our resources section, we also have a list of wines that we recommend. And again, for this, the wines have to be vegan, as well as um, we need to feel comfortable with how the workers are treated as well. What are, yeah. the, what are the issues in the wine industry? Again, you have farm workers who are picking the grapes off the vines and the way that they're treated and again working um, in extreme temperatures, not being paid living wages. Um, Rape unfortunately is rampant in um, the farm working industry. Um, And there's a film called um, Food Chains which actually goes through and shows how a lot of these um, farm workers in the wine industry are actually homeless. Um, actually, many farm workers in California are homeless. Uh, we're talking about California here, yes? We are talking about California. Wow. Yeah. I suppose so, that's the nature of the food industry is that it's relatively untrained or people don't require a lot of tra- it doesn't require a lot of training to get involved in doing the work and is often seasonal. Well, no, it's more that the, the wineries aren't paying the people enough money to have a roof over their heads. 
So a lot of these farm workers that come into California are actually victims of NAFTA and they're victims of companies um, like things like genetic engineering, where a huge influx of cheap corn has gone into countries such as Mexico, where the farmers are leaving because they no longer can be farmers in their own country anymore. So they come here to try and do farm work. So a lot of them are incredibly skilled. They're just not being paid living wages. So thus, they have to live in their cars, they have to live in their pickup trucks, they have to live on the creeks, and um, because they're simply not being paid enough money. How is, okay, I'm really curious um, about what you said about genetic engineering. I don't know any of the backgrounds to this issue on cheap corn affecting Mexico. Could you talk a little more about that? Sure, basically you have very cheap corn flooding the markets in Mexico. So a staple for people in Mexico is corn. They use it for a lot of different products. And now you have it coming in from the United States and it's extremely cheap because of genetic engineering. Um, so a lot of the farmers, they're just not making much money on the corn that they grow anymore. So they're leaving their land and they're leaving their families and they're coming up to the United States to try and make work, you know, try and make a living. Yeah. Could you tell listeners something about NAFTA, uh, what it is, and how it's affecting farm workers? I have to admit I'm not an expert on this, so I'll just say the basics of what yeah. I know. And that NAFTA was a North American free trade agreement, which allowed um, free trade between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and the country to not reap any of the benefits has been Mexico. So um, a lot of our food products and other things have been able to go to Mexico and it's very cheap. And so it's, you know, greatly impacting the people who live in Mexico from being able to make stuff themselves. And You do some work on uh, healthy food in communities. Yeah. So basically, you know, we believe everybody has a right to healthy food. We actually, we also believe that people have the right to eat their ethics. So if people are vegans, they have a right to not consume animals if you know but many communities they don't have this ability they don't even have access to fresh produce um, so what we try to do is we try to make an assessment of communities so we physically go in and we survey different locations um, to assess the availability of you know fresh frozen and canned produce and vegetables of a wide variety and we do it on culturally appropriateness as well so the current community we're working in is called Vallejo and it's near it's between San Francisco and Sacramento in Northern California, and it has a high Latino, Black, and Filipino community. So in this community, we needed to make sure that our survey tool had foods um, that those communities would be looking for. So we surveyed to see how much of this food was available. We also surveyed to see about meat and dairy alternatives, again, because we believe people have the right to eat their ethic, but also because many people of color cannot digest lactose. Um, it's a colonized food that was brought into many of our countries, and so our bodies aren't equipped to digest it. So um, we do these assessments, and then we write, you know, print out a report. You know, we have, again, volunteers doing the collection, and we have volunteers who do the assessments, and we put out a report with our findings. So in June, we're actually going to be having an event where we'll be inviting policymakers as well as musicians and um, we're going to have all vegan food there, um, but we're going to be a big community event where we discuss our findings and what the situation is like in that community when it comes to just being able to access fresh fruits and vegetables. I mean, just that alone 
is difficult in that community. Yeah. So again, this is when we, you know, one of the things when we try and, you know, we're doing this, we do this work because it's an injustice that's taking place, that community health in these areas, predominantly communities of color, their health is, is being sacrificed. And, you know, so we want to do what we can to help right that injustice and, and really shine a light on what's taking place in these communities that don't even have access. We also want people to be able to go vegan if they want to, and they're not going to be able to unless they have these types of foods in their community. So we always try and remind vegans, at least here in the States, a lot of them will say things like it's easy for anybody to go vegan without recognizing that it's not easy for everybody to go vegan um, and that we need to be mindful when we say things like that because for many, depending on when they're living, it's very difficult for them to even just access fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah, that's I, I certainly for me. I remember when I went vegetarian in the 1980s. Certainly, I didn't find it particularly easy to go vegetarian, and I believe I can empathise uh, with people who don't find it easy to go vegan or vegetarian, because certainly I didn't find it easy to go vegetarian when I first did. And there is an assumption right. that all people find it easy to go vegetarian or vegan and um, there's both a personal point of view and just not everyone has the access to the things that you get in certainly in cities or if you've got the money to spend on the vegan treats. Exactly. Is this something that I've not covered in particular at the moment? I don't know how popular Mexican food is out there but we do have veganmexicanfood.com that's full of just vegan Mexican food recipes. That's very interesting because I think a lot of vegans do like vegan Mexican food and I see the link that you've got there on your website so uh, I'm going to go and check that out at some point in future and you've got a lot of recipes there yeah we do we're always wanting more so if anybody has any recipes they want to donate to us we do credit the people who give us the recipes we just want to grow our list as much as we can and yes you do have churros so that's great um, <laughs> listeners <Yes>. can check, <laughs> check that out uh, <laughs> So what's in store for the future for Food Empowerment Project? Well, I think you're airing this on May 1st. Yes. Which is actually our anniversary. We uh, made sure our anniversary would always be on May Day. Oh, that's cool. Um, to bring up worker issues and make sure that, you know, we are a vegan organization, but we're very proud of the fact that we're also very much um, for worker rights. And we don't see, you know, it's worth sacrificing one for the other that we need to talk about all of it, whether it be the restaurant workers, the fast food workers, the farm workers, um, you know, that we need to, to do our best to, to fight for against all these forms of oppression that take place. And I see that we will only be bigger and stronger if we act together and not, you know, silo off. Are there specific projects that you've got planned for the future? Um, what else? Well, we'll be doing another school supply drive, um, and we are going to be starting a new project where we're going to be um, doing surveys. Um, we have what are called taquerias out here. They're like Mexican food places. They're really small. They're not like restaurants and um, some of them out where we're based have a vegan menu. So we're going to be talking to these um, owners of these taquerias and serving them and finding out why they keep it, why they have it, and give us suggestions how we can encourage more taquerias around the country to have vegan foods. They, they just had a vegan menu, yes? Yeah, there's something. Do you know John McDougall? I, I, I don't know him, but I know the name, yes. Okay, so his facility is out here. 
And what happened is, is that a lot of the restaurants in the area decided to have what's called a McDougal menu. All right. And the McDougal menu is vegan. And a lot of these tiny little taquerias out here have the McDougal menus and they've had them for like over 10 years. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So we want to find out, you know, obviously they did it on their own and, you know, they still have them. And so we just want to learn from them and see if we can help more taquerias around the country have a vegan menu. So that's a project that we have working on. Um, again, the event we have coming up in Vallejo is um, in Vallejo is very um, kind of a big deal. We've been working on a report for that community for a couple years now, and we're finally going to be releasing it. And that's going to be so, in June, yes? Yes, June 26th. That's yeah. great. So for listeners to learn more about Food Empowerment Project, tell the listeners the website, please. Our website is foodispower.org. We're always trying to remind people that their, their food choices can change the world. That's wonderful. Lauren, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Roy. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all the good work that you do as well. Thank you very much. Have a great May Day. Thank you. You too. Thanks very Bye. much. Bye. Um, you're listening to Freedom of Species, Animal Activism on the Airwaves. And that was an interview with Lauren Ornelius, Director of Food Empowerment Project over in the USA, USA an organisation that was founded on May Day. So we're coming to the end of the show. But before we go, we have got a large number of community announcements. And so, one after another, we've got one from Queensland, and this is the welcome to the fourth annual Empty the Tanks rally. Empty the Tanks is an annual worldwide protest and public awareness campaign against cetacean captivity. Empty the Tanks is not a radical movement demanding the release of all captive marine mammals into the wild. Some of these animals may be a great candidate for release, but not those. But those that are not should be retired into sea pens where they can enjoy the rest of the days in natural seawater feeling the waves of the ocean around them. They should not be worked until their last breath is taken and then thrown out like trash and replaced. So this on May the 7th, 2016, peaceful gatherings and educational events will be held all over the world. The aim is to highlight the cruel and lucrative industry of keeping cetaceans, such uh, sentient gentle souls behind our bars of concrete tanks, in their education under the guise of entertainment. And... They need your help. They need your voices, your slogans, your dedication to seeing an end to the business of keeping dolphins in activity. So for more information, you can go onto Facebook and search for Empty the Tanks Rally. And there is going to be a rally happening at Gold Coast at Broadwater Parklands Marine Parade Southport. That's on May the 7th at 11 a.m. For more information, search on Facebook for the Empty the Tanks Rally. And then also we have protests in Victoria against the ongoing cruelty to animals for the entertaining entertainment industry. This is, of course, the awful thing of jumps racing. And in fact, a horse died this week at Cranbourne Racetrack in jumps trials. And there was a protest on, I think it was Thursday, at Burke Street Mall, because the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses will always have a rally the day after the death of a horse in Burke Street Mall in Melbourne. And 
Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses needs your help to speak up for jumps horses. The annual Warnable Carnival is approaching once again. It features six jumps races over three days, the cruelest race being the grand annual steeplechase spanning 5.5 kilometres and 33 fences. Since 2008, 15 horses have been killed in jumps races at Warnable. And at the 2009 rally, three horses died in just two races alone. So this is a rally on Thursday the 5th of May. That's this week. Warnable Racecourse, main entrance on Moore Street. Um, Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses will be there. They'll provide signs and banners. And any information, please email inquiries at horseracingkills.com. Having been to one of the demos, I would recommend taking an umbrella and warm clothes for the Warnable demos, because it can be a little cold. Other things, this Friday, maybe after your rally in Warnable, you may want to hear some blues music. And on Friday the 6th of May, there's an annual Animal Justice Party, Northern Metropolitan Candidate Fundraiser, Blues Music Jam. It'll be included entertainment to 11pm. Guests, an open mic, um, vegan food and drinks available for purchase on the evening. And tickets are $20. And this is to benefit the campaigns of Miranda Smith for the seat of Melbourne, Camille Kennedy Sido on the seat of Wills, and John Matlin for the seat of Scullin. And this is at the Old Fire Station Cafe Gallery, um, which is 378 High Street in Preston. And that's, again, on Facebook. And final announcement is a Melbourne Pig Save Rally on 21st of May and a Go Vegan for Mother's Day pledge on the 8th of May. Oh, two more events. Um, So search for these on Facebook. That is this week, Go Vegan for Mother's Day pledge. That's next Sunday. And then on 21st of May, Melbourne Pig Save Rally. So we are coming to the end of the show. I would like to thank the Food Empowerment Project for the work they do. And next week, we don't have Freedom of Species show because 3CR is suspending regular programming next week for the Sisters Acousmatica 3CR Radical Transmission Sound Art Performance taking place as part of New Next Wave Art Festival. So we'll be back in two weeks. I think it's Kate Gracie that's got the show then. And I'm not sure what she's going to be talking about, but we'll find out. So hope you have a lovely Sunday. Have a really radical May Day and keep looking after the animals. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.